Thank you for downloading our podcast. Luke's goal is to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus. His aim is to make sure Theophilus is confident about what he has been taught. So what is Luke trying to confirm for Theophilus? What does Luke tell us about Christ's importance in history? Please join us as we seek to answer these questions as we go through Luke's Gospel. Up to this point in the Gospel, we've heard about Jesus. And there's one time where we heard Christ speak in Luke's recounting. And this is when the parents are, or Jesus' parents are looking for him. They search frantically for him. We saw Christ coming of age where Christ being the teenager, you know, once again, developing those critical faculties, uh, interacting with his parents. And his parents, or his mom rebukes him. She's searching frantically for him. And Christ simply says, well, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Now, Christ is not sinning when he says this, but it tells us that when Christ gently rebukes his mother for not seeing the nature of his mission, we were reminded of how ordinary Christ was in terms of how he appeared, in terms of the true human flesh that he took on, that he looked like just any other normal, average human being. But also we learn from that how Christ is conscious that his ministry and his purpose in this world is not just to find purpose, if you will, and to figure out what he's called to do or should do or desire to do. His purpose is to fulfill the mission of the Father. And so one of the significant things in that event that we should recall and think about when Christ is in the temple is that Christ right there is conscious that his mission is to go to Jerusalem, to be the Messiah, to live the perfect life, and to accomplish the work that the Father has given him to do. So now we've heard the Father make a pronouncement of Christ, which is significant, right? You are my son, with you I am well pleased. Recalling for us that Jesus Christ is the faithful Son of God. So as we know these two things from the testimony of the Father, Jesus' own consciousness, the testimony of the angels, the testimony of Zechariah, Mary, etc., we've heard the testimony of what Christ is going to do. Now we find the event when it is time for Christ to go and to engage with the serpent or Satan or the devil in the wilderness and to truly be tested. The very claim, is Christ worthy to be called the Son of God? That's what the devil, Satan, the adversary, is seeking to challenge. And so when we look at this, what is Christ going to fundamentally say about his ministry? And what do we find then about his son or Christ being son? Is he going to live up to his father's expectations or is Christ going to crumble? Because when we really look at what these temptations are, that's fundamentally what the devil wants him to question. The promise, the word of his father and what his father has said. So as we look at this, we'll see first 
that there's an accusation against the father with the father's failure to provide. Secondly, there's an accusation of the father failing to endow or give Christ proper authority. And third, there's an accusation that Christ is one who's wrongfully humbled. And so let's begin with his accusation of failing to provide. Now as we set the stage here and, and we notice what Christ is doing, we have to understand that Jesus and John, uh, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, uh, John the Prophet, John the Forerunner, whatever you want to say, is the one who goes before Christ with a significant mission. His mission is to prepare the way for Jesus being the Messiah. One Lord, one Christ, one Messiah, the one who redeems. Christ is the one who has to establish the kingdom. So John the Baptist being the Elijah-like prophet, the one who brings reformation, right? He's reforming Israel, calling them to, to look to their Messiah and recognizing that what they're hoping in is not anything that provides lasting hope, but they, with the Gentiles, need to look to the one Christ. We know Christ from his genealogy, and it's very important we understand the claim that Luke has made, because he's writing to Theophilus, lover of God, anyone who desires to know this uh, gospel message and his testimony is shown to truly be a lover of God. And I do believe Theophilus was a very literal person. He's not a metaphor, but his name uh, becomes rather significant because all of us can live up to that name, a Theophilus. Now, in terms of, of this name and who Christ is, remember, supposedly Joseph. So people look at him, see him as, as just a son of Joseph, son of Adam, son of Abraham, and ending with son of God. And so the important thing in this genealogy, do you see Christ as merely the son of Joseph, a carpenter, or do you see Christ as last Adam, son of God, Messiah, Redeemer, right? This genealogy is driving that home. Who do you say this Christ is? And so when we understand that, this is a context of what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to challenge, is Christ really the Son of God, or is he just like the first Adam? You merely encounter him, you go and you question some things about the Father or God's word, and he's just going to fall in line. Fundamentally seeing that God really isn't that good. Right? Because, now I'm not saying that, this is what the devil's claiming. That God really isn't that good. So when Christ is set in a stage of the wilderness, led by the Spirit, not accidental, Spirit brings him into the wilderness, equipped, endowed with the Holy Spirit, as Luke tells us, to do the mission and ministry. There's a significance here, right? We think of the wilderness, place of reformation, place of reprioritization, if you will, where the goodness of the land, the, the temple, these sorts of things are taken away. One has to reprioritize one's life. In other words, what does God mean to me? As I'm being tested in the wilderness, well, what does it mean that I'm one who's set apart by the living God? What does that fundamentally mean, right? That's the wilderness, testing, reshaping, reforming, remolding the people of God. So that's one meaning. But we also think of Israel in the wilderness, and they did not excel in this testing. 
They failed, wandered 40 years. Christ is here for 40 days. We think of Elijah after the battle with the gods recounted for us in 1 Kings 19 where he's in the wilderness for 40 days and ministered to by angels. We have this picture, this reminder, this recollection of Christ reliving this history of Israel that was not stellar, uh, that we find with the exception of a few men, they did not excel in this season. We think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, the moment he faces a serpent, and the serpent starts calling into question the goodness of God, and whether God's really good in depriving them of this one tree, right? And Adam falls in line. What is Christ going to do? Well, like Adam with the tree, we find now that Luke recalls for us that Christ encounters a particular individual called the devil. Now, in Luke's gospel, this is important because the devil literally means slanderer. He's he's liar. He's one who misrepresents the word of God. So with this introduction of the devil, he might say, well, does Luke only say the devil? Well, no, we find Luke uses Satan. We have an example in Luke 10, verse 18, where Christ says that he saw Satan falling out of heaven. We have in Luke 11, verse 18, where Christ recounts that Satan's kingdom cannot. We have in Luke uh, 13, verse 16, that Satan's the one who holds people captive through demon possession. Uh, We have in uh, Luke 22, verse 3 and 31, Satan uh, entering Judas and Satan given permission to sift Peter. And so he uses the name Satan and the devil. This is not something that he denies. But there's a point in calling attention to the name the devil. Because this literally means slanderer. So when we look at these temptations, this is cluing us in to what the devil's trying to do. He's slandering God. He's taking the word of God and twisting the word of God. So it's not to say that everything the devil is saying is necessarily wrong, right? He's citing the word of God. But what the devil's doing is he's taking the word of God and he's twisting it and and trying to present it in a way where he sort of weaponizes it to make Christ stumble. So we find this, this first reality. And notice how he introduces himself or interacts with Christ. If you are the son of God. Right, right there, doesn't that put someone on the defense? <laughs> you say, well, did you not hear my baptism? Do you not know the genealogy? What do you mean if I am the son of God? I am the son of God. It's right there to sort of put Christ on the defensive, to sort of knock him off his game, if you will. You know, you claim to be the son of God. You know, there's a voice from heaven that says you're the son of God. But, you know, if you're really the son of God... So you can hear just the, the wickedness, you know, just makes your skin crawl and what's going on. Now Satan turns him and, and does not necessarily take a specific passage here, but it's sort of the implication of what John has said. Remember in John's ministry, he said, don't say we have Abraham and the prophets, or Abraham is our father and the prophets, and, and that's what secures us. He's saying the very son of God can take these stones and raise up children of Abraham. Well, 
Satan's laying out something else here for Christ. He's not going to the extreme of taking this inanimate object of a stone and recreating followers or children of God from the stones. No, he's saying, why don't you just take these stones and make some food? Come on, you've been 40 days hungry. If you're really the son of God, don't you deserve some luxuries? I mean, come on, you are the son of God. And if you're really the son of God, look at what your father's doing to you. Look, look at you, you're a mess. 40 days, no food. What kind of father does that to his child? Why don't you just use your power, take these stones, make some food? What, what, what's, the, what's the harm in that? You can do it, can't you? I mean, if, if you are the son of God, I'm sure you could probably do it. So you feel the force of this temptation because so often we think, well, was Christ really tempted? Was it really difficult? Well, he looks ordinary, right? As we've recounted in the genealogy, he really has the human flesh. We know what it's like to go without food. I mean, most of us, I don't know if any of us, really go a whole day without food, right? I mean, we get to lunchtime, dinner time, we get kind of hungry and our stomach growls. So imagine that over 40 days. Now someone comes to you and says, don't you have the power to just make some food, whatever you want? I mean, it's just a command, right? If you're the son of God. So you wonder, what is Christ going to do? Well, Christ responds with Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where Moses reminds Israel that it's not the manna that gives life, right? Christ plays on this in John 6, the bread from heaven, right? So what he's saying now is he's calling to the devil's attention that I'm not going to even entertain these slanderous words. The reality is I know that there is life beyond this age. And just looking to the mere convenience of what this world offers is not true life. Even the manna that got Israel through the wilderness was not true life. It pointed their attention and their affections to the true God. And so Christ is saying to the devil, listen, you slanderous one, this does not secure true life. This is not true, and I'm not giving in to this. I understand that life truly comes only from God and living out of the eternity of heaven itself. A reminder for us in terms of our priorities in this age as we all struggle to keep them in their proper perspective. But the devil moves on. He's not finished yet. Adam cracked in one temptation, but he's not going to be done yet. So the devil goes on. And now he's turning to Christ in verses 5 through 8 and really challenging whether or not Christ has authority. And so now Satan is getting closer in, in terms of, of what we find in the word of God. Because as Christ is here in the wilderness, and here he is suffering. Here he is 40 days without food. Uh, Christ is, is doing this very task. One would wonder, is he really endowed with the authority of God? I mean, Moses was on the mountain. He got to commune with God. And Exodus 24:18 was on the mountain for 40 days and came down with a luminosity and was encouraged. What about Christ? What, what is he getting from this? So you can understand how Satan presents us. So Satan now turns to Christ and he says, look up all these kingdoms. We don't know exactly where he is in Luke's gospel. Um, we, it isn't told to us. This is a, a vision like we have in Matthew's gospel. 
But the implication is there is a real presentation of all the kingdoms of the world. And when, you, when Christ looks over all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says, here's a simple solution. Really simple solution. All these kingdoms of the world I own, right? So he's loosely looking at Psalm 2, 8, applying it to the nations coming together, Satan basically being the ruler, how he can see certainly satanic influence when we look in Daniel, and we can see those sorts of things taking place. So when you look at Psalm 2, verse 8 in particular, you can say, well, maybe, maybe Satan or the devil really does own these kingdoms and, and these, these nations. And here's a simple solution. You see, the Father wants Christ to go through Jerusalem, to go on the cross, and to die. He's got to suffer up to that moment. He's going to suffer on the cross. He's going to have to endure hell and be raised to life. And, and why? Well, it's to accomplish redemption, right? I mean, isn't that the very purpose of what Christ is going to do, to accomplish redemption? Well, why go through all that drama? Here's an easy solution. Turn to Satan, bow down, and Satan simply endows him with glory. No cross, no suffering. No going through Jerusalem, no kangaroo court, no dealing with the Pharisees and, and all the agitation Christ has to deal with. Just bow down. Your mission is done. You don't even have to go into the synagogue. You're done, finished. You own the nations. Now, isn't this tempting? I mean, you can understand the force of this. And when you go 40 days without food, you're not the most clear-headed in terms of decision-making. And so one wonders, what is Christ going to do? Well, Christ now cites from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And as he cites from Deuteronomy 6, it's a reminder of what we have here in terms of the canonization of what God has written. And in Deuteronomy 6, it's that reminder that one only worships the Lord. And so the temptation here in the context is how you have the Israelites trying to uh, turn to other things, trust in other things, and, and are tempted to trust in, in means and things of this world and other gods. But Christ, as he memorizes the word of God, and again, I think this is very important, because it's not Christ as the incarnate word. Now, Christ is the incarnate word, right? He is the incarnate word. He doesn't just say, well, as the incarnate word, this is the word that I declare. He's citing Moses. He's teaching us the sufficiency of the word of God in the midst of these temptations. And he doesn't engage with Satan concerning Psalm 2 and about how really the kingdoms are to be handed to Christ at the appropriate time when the Father endows him at the appropriate time and to manifest his glory. He doesn't go down that road. He knows the devil lives up to his name. He is a liar. He is a slanderer. He's taking the word of God out of context and trying to trip Christ up and present a false word and, and manipulate it to mean something other so it becomes weaponized to make Christ stumble. But Christ takes the word from the prophet and makes it very clear. There is one God and one Father that we serve. One who orients our priorities. 
And Christ in saying this is saying, I am the one who serves him exclusively. I am not going to serve another. It is only this one. Now in terms of Christ going on, and we see Christ making it very clear that you worship this one God and him alone, we have now this third test, verses 9 through 13. Now again, uh, as Christ is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple, we have record in, in Josephus that uh, the pinnacle of the temple was 30-some meters, people say, above the walls. So when you think about this, Christ is roughly about 100 to 110 feet in the air. And so he's standing high. And when, when you think about the implication of this with Christ and his ministry, people going in and out of the, the wilderness, you can see people going in and out of the temple is a picture here, right? So this is a, a public place, vision or not. It's a reality of this. It's a true test. And as Christ is here on the pinnacle of the temple, the simple thing to do as Satan presents it to him is to simply jump off. And as Christ jumps off the temple, the angels of heaven will all of a sudden magically appear and grab Christ up. Now we say, well, this is fictitious. This is silly. But what does David say in Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12? You see, Satan's not just pulling this temptation out of thin air. He's saying to Christ, isn't this what David said? I mean, he was inspired. He, he wrote this in the Psalms. And isn't Psalm 91 predicting the Messiah and his work and, and the accomplishment of what he is to do? Well, here's an opportunity. If you really are the Son of God, if you really have authority, if you're really the one who's going to redeem and save, why don't you just show everyone who you are? Why conceal it? Why, why speak in parables so they don't really know who you are? Just jump. Have the angels of heaven come. Think of the magnificent display of the glory of heaven being presented here right in the context of the temple. And you can understand then the force of this temptation. How the slanderer is working, selling Christ. After all, scripture says it. Psalm 91. Come on, Christ, jump. Here you go. Here's your chance. Make a public spectacle of yourself. Well, Christ knows the context of Psalm 91. And again, rather than debating all the ins and outs of how this applies to the Messiah and what this all means and what's going on here, Christ turns again to Moses, and he appeals to Deuteronomy 66, verse 16, where the people are those who test the Lord, doubt the credibility of the Lord. And so the whole purpose of testing God and why it's so wrong is because we're saying, well, Lord, here's a promise you made, but now I want you to confirm this promise on my terms. And as you confirm this on my terms, then I will believe in you. So what we're basically doing is we're trying to stand over God and make him prove himself to us, which is exactly what Satan's doing to Christ. But he's trying to make it very classy, very biblical, uh, something where Christ should really have this confidence that the Father will do this. But as Christ says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Christ is saying, listen, you slanderer devil. I know my mission. 
I know that I must die to conquer death. I know that I must endure hell. I know that I must submit to my father. And I know that in submission to my father, this is not necessarily an easy mission. But I am going to accomplish the mission. And he's going to rise and he's going to do the very task that the father has set out for him to do. So as Christ stands strong in the midst of this temptation against the slanderer who twists the word of God, because that's really what Luke is emphasizing, that the devil's twisting the word of God, Satan leaves him. But notice what Luke says for a more opportune time. In other words, the devil is not one who's just going to give up. He wants to continue to test and undermine and destroy the credibility of the living God. I mean, this is a rather tragic declaration of his state and his mindset of how he conducts himself. But nevertheless, what we find in the comfort of this is Christ prevails. Now, one of the things we may wonder if you're familiar with Matthew's temptations and Luke's temptations, uh, just a few things. One of the main things that stands out is the ordering of the temptations. So in Matthew's gospel, he has bread, temple, and then he has a high place. So he ends on the high place. Has uh, uh, angels then ministering, but whatever the case, he ends on the high place. So Luke has bread, high place, ends at the temple. We might wonder, well, does this mean that we shouldn't trust the gospel accounts? Does this mean that when Luke sets out to write this gospel that uh, we should really doubt the credibility of Matthew or Luke and wonder which one's really right? Well, the problem is, part of that is we're looking at it from a Western mindset, right? And as I mentioned, when Luke writes this gospel, he's not just setting out to write a chronological history of Christ. It's more of a, a historiography, if you will, a study of Christ's importance, a study of what Christ is doing. So he has a, a theological mindset that's driving him. And so in Luke's gospel, we have this emphasis of what is Luke trying to show. Jesus Christ is a son of God, who is a true temple, who is going to accomplish redemption once for all. For Matthew, his emphasis is to show again and again and again Jesus, who is the son of Abraham, coming to fulfill the mission of where Israel failed. For Luke, his gospel view has a greater uh, parameters, if you will, that he wants to include Jew and Gentile as he writes to a Gentile and wants to assure the Gentiles that this is not just a Jewish Messiah. Matthew, this is the Messiah that was promised and predicted and prophesied, and Jesus did this to fulfill. Now, as he does this first to the Jew, this gospel goes out to the Gentiles, as we find in Matthew 28. Luke's starting right with that premise or, or that claim that this gospel is for Jew and Gentile. And so when, when Christ is going out and ending on the reality of this temple and the testing the Lord. Christ wants us to understand that this temple has a purpose. It's not going to last. It's not going to endure. The true temple is Jesus Christ. And so it's calling to our attention, he's the one who's not going to fail. He's the one who's not going to put the Lord to the test. 
But we do find something else here when we study what the devil's doing. And we think about how Satan and the devil weaponizes scripture. This is something that that we need to, to be discerning. That's why I like going through Ecclesiastes, where you have your different seasons, your different times, your different exercising of wisdom, if you will. You know, uh, well, what do you do in this time? What do you do in this time? What's this season? What's this season? All of it is under the umbrella of seeking to live out the wisdom of God. And this is where, when we look at what the devil's doing, that the statements he makes are not necessarily false. We, we can find his theology in scripture. It's not a good theology. It's not a proper theology. Because what's the fundamental desire that the devil has? To call into question who God is. And when we hear Christ proclaiming and taking the words of the prophets, it should assure us in our Christian life. Because I know so often in our tradition as Reformed, we can be known as uh, maybe Stoic, dull. There's a lot of words that are used for us. You know, the joke with Calvin's wife, she died of boredom, right? So there's this sort of mindset that we have, that we don't have an exciting worship in a sense. All of a sudden there's an ecstatic utterance in the spirit and this ecstatic uh, breaking out where someone um, breaks into a translation for what was ever said. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's something that continues. I do believe uh, that was limited to a particular time. And so we say, well, then, then why is it, as Reformed people in particular, that, that we become so dull in, in the sense of what we find in 1 Corinthians 14 and, and, and Corinth? Well, the reason is because what does Christ do in the answering of the devil? Christ is the God-man. He is the incarnate word, Right? He is the definitive prophet, the, the word incarnate that comes from heaven. And where does he appeal? He appeals to Moses. He appeals to the canonical word. And so when, when we say, well, then how does God really speak to us? How do we know that God's really speaking to us? Because I, I, I want to hear God speak to us. Listen to your Savior. Because he's hearing the words of the prophet. When the Apostle Paul exhorts us to discern what is pleasing unto the Lord, what is Christ doing? He's taking the, the claims of the devil, the slanderous one, saying, well, this is not what that text means and what it's teaching. It's not about me trying to claim glory for myself before I'm called to, to proclaim and receive glory. It's really about me submitting to the Father. And so in the midst of where we find ourselves in terms of being his redeemed saints, the ultimate assurance we take from this is that the failure of Adam, ultimately, heeding the words of Satan, first temptation for Adam, first temptation, is God really good? I mean, come on, you, you can't have that tree. Is that good? Shouldn't you have that tree? I mean, if you're, if you're a creature and God created you and it's good and everything you made is good, why, why can't you have that tree? Why don't you put God in this place? Why don't you show him who's boss? And that's the force of, what's, of what the devil's doing to Christ. And the assurance is that Christ lives up to the credibility of the genealogy. He truly is the last Adam. 
the one who has conquered. And so we say, well, how do we know that the word of God is really true? Well, Christ himself isn't bringing a new revelation. He's appealing to the word of God that we receive. And as he appeals to the word of God, he's assuring us that as the word of God has testified to his mission, he has accomplished it. And so as Luke writes to Theophilus, he's encouraging Theophilus, listen to this Christ, but don't just listen to him as a rabbi or a teacher. See him as your redeemer, as your savior, as the one who has relived the failing of his people so that you have life and have it abundantly in him and in him alone. So it's not just knowing some things about the word of God, but it's knowing our Savior and recognizing that we are empowered in him. He gives true everlasting life as the one who has truly earned it. So what does Christ then fundamentally say about his ministry? What is the son going to do after his public declaration? Well, Christ is going to live up to his father's expectations. That's, that's an important point to take from us. He lives up to his father's expectations. He shows that he is a faithful son who will do the father's will to secure and redeem his people at the appointed time that the father has set out for him to do it. We also find that Christ is the one who does, does not minimize or invalidate the prophets or the word that has gone before him but he validates it, not only in fulfilling the promises, but in actually citing what Moses has said, assuring us that the words of the prophet are sufficient for life, eternal life, and true life that endures. And so Christ then, in terms of how he lives, what is he going to say in terms of his public ministry? He's going to do the Father's will. And so as Luke writes this gospel, And if somebody comes in and says, ah, there's some contradictions between Luke and Matthew, you remind them. Luke's not writing just a specific chronological history. He's writing a theological history, a study of what Christ is doing. And wants to assure us that as Christ ends at this glorious picture of the temple, that Christ is one who will never put his father's words to the test, but will truly live by them. And will be our faithful savior and redeemer. And we find at the end of Luke's gospel, he is certainly confirmed as our faithful Savior and Redeemer. Let us then walk in the confidence of the words of life that we possess, the words of life that God has given us, the words of life that truly lay out the promises and assurance of of what God has revealed to us. But let us also take this and read this in light of our glorious Redeemer, who has overcome and conquered. So we have life and true life that never ends in him. Let us be convicted then that our Savior is sufficient and his revelation is sufficient and we will find life in him and in his word. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbel.com.
G-R-A-D-E.com. That is URCBelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.